they had never had a slump in sales in all those years. But 1982 was a different year. And it was not a good year for the American economy. And so Chick-fil-A was experiencing their first ever slump in sales. And so the executives, Truett and his executive committee, started talking about why that was and what they would do about it. So they went off to a retreat. Now, most companies, when they're in that situation of a slump in sales, oh, and I forgot to mention, Chick-fil-A had just opened their brand new corporate headquarters, five-story, beautiful building sitting on 76 acres. So Truett not only had a slump in sales, but he was deeply in debt. And when organizations find themselves in that position, you know, one of the first things they're going to do is cut budgets and reduce their workforce. So the Chick-fil-A executives went off on a retreat to discuss what they were going to do about this situation. And for the first half day, they talked about those types of issues. How do we how do we reduce our expenses? And then halfway through the first day of this three day retreat, one of them said, wait a minute, why are we here at all? And they spent the next two and a half days discussing their why. They came back to the Chick-fil-A corporate office and they shared that with the staff there of what they decided. And it was that purpose I mentioned earlier to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that's entrusted to us to be a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. Hey, this is Cal Walters with the Intentional Leader Podcast. I first want to thank you for joining us here today. Our mission is to help you intentionally lead yourself inspire others and make the world a better place. I hope you enjoy this message. Let's go make it count. Hey everyone, I'm Cal and welcome to episode 65 of the Intentional Leader Podcast. Our goal is to help you become the type of leader that others love to follow. If you've ever visited a Chick-fil-A restaurant, you've probably noticed there's something different about the way they do business. Well, if you've experienced that, you're not alone. Every year, they crush their competition and customer satisfaction, and they are significantly more profitable than their rivals. So how do they do it? What's their secret sauce? And I'm not talking about the Chick-fil-A sauce. Well, today, I'm really excited to bring you my conversation with a 33-year veteran of Chick-fil-A, Deanne Turner. Deanne was selected as the company's first female officer in 2001, and she served as the vice president of talent and the vice president of sustainability. During her long career, she worked closely with Chick-fil-A's founder, Truett Cathy, and other key leaders as an architect of that great organizational culture that you see today. Under her leadership at Chick-fil-A, they had the industry's leading employee engagement, which is really hard to get, and they had a 95% retention rate for corporate staff and franchisees. And today you're going to get to hear exactly how they created this amazing culture and how you can go and do the same in your team and your organization. As we're getting rolling today, I just want to say thank you. Thank you to all of you that continue to listen to this podcast. I know there are so many podcasts out there that you could be listening to, and I sincerely appreciate your time. I take it really seriously. My goal is to really add value to you while we're here together. And if you're new to this show, thank you for being here. We release a new episode every two weeks, and my goal is to give you practical leadership lessons every session. We're not going to get too theoretical. We're going to give you some nuggets and tools that you can go and implement and improve your leadership today. 
And if you want to make sure that you get episodes every two weeks when we release them, please hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I know I personally only tend to listen to those podcasts that I subscribe to. So please subscribe. we got a lot of great episodes we've already recorded and many more to come in the following months. So please subscribe and stay connected to us as we're releasing new content. I want to say thank you to all of you that have shared this podcast with your network, with your friends, and also thank you to all of you that have taken a few minutes to rate or review this on Apple Podcasts, whether you're in the U.S. or abroad. And we just released this podcast on Audible, which is a platform by Amazon to listen to audiobooks. I use that to listen to audiobooks. You can now access this podcast there. And you can also leave a rating and review there. We just got our first review a few days ago from Kelsey Walker out of Micah, Washington. The review was titled, A Humble Leader Who Keeps Me Wanting to Hear More. She said, I love the short episodes that I can take little bits of learning each day and absorb it. The lifestyle Cal preaches is so ideal and yet so realistic and can be accomplished if you're really looking to change your behaviors and utilize the principles that he offers. His humble approach to teaching what he knows, but also reaching out to others with different skill sets and experiences makes it interesting and worth the listen. Kelsey, thank you so much for those encouraging words. It really is reviews, emails, texts like this that keep me going during those early mornings before I go to work and in the evenings and when I get discouraged. So thank you so much for the encouragement. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate all of you that have taken the time to rate or review this podcast and help us grow. It helps us impact more leaders and it helps us especially reach a younger audience, which gets me really excited. Also, please consider becoming a patron of Intentional Leader. Our long-term vision is really ambitious and resources really help propel us to accomplish that long-term vision. You can become a partner with us by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Cal Walters to become a monthly patron. I'd like to give a shout out to Taylor Barnard, who recently became a patron. Thank you so much for your support, brother. I appreciate that. Also, please consider joining the Attentional Leader Lab on Facebook. This is a private group on Facebook where we can talk about leadership resources, debate leadership topics, share your struggles, and get advice from other leaders. It's a private group on Facebook. Just go to Facebook. I'll put links to both the Patreon and the Intentional Leader Lab Facebook group on the show notes of this episode. I'd like to also just mention today's sponsor. Today's sponsor is Higher Echelon. Higher Echelon is a leadership development and organizational performance consulting firm providing human capital and technology services to optimize performance. Higher Echelon can help prepare your team, your organization to meet the rapidly changing, and we are in a rapidly changing and a very complex and an ambiguous time right now. So this this great organization can help you, can come in and help you create and develop resilient and adaptive leaders. They can help you modernize and enhance your processes and your systems. And they can help you implement transforming technology solutions for your organization. I listened to a great episode on the Beyond the Uniform podcast where the president of Higher Echelon, Dr. Joe Ross, was speaking with the host, Justin Nasiri, about the the story of Higher Echelon and their focus. And they have this great approach where they focus on people, your processes, and your technology and the overlap between that. And that really covers everything in an organization. So go visit higherechelon.com, connect with the great team there, and learn more about how they can help you and your team today. 
And hey, without any further ado, I want to jump into this episode. I'm really excited for you all to hear from Deanne Turner. I'll put links to her full bio and her website and her best-selling books in the show notes of this episode. Just go to calwalters.me. Her book, It's My Pleasure, and its newest version, Bet on Talent, they'll teach you how to find and keep extraordinary talent. You can also check out her brand new book, Crush Your Career, which helps you take talent and make it even better. So go check out both of those. Without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Chick-fil-A veteran, Deanne Turner. All right, Deanne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much, Cal. It's a pleasure to be with you. My family and I, as I'm sure you hear this all the time, we are such big Chick-fil-A fans. And I'm always curious, like, how does Chick-fil-A do what they do? How do they make the, the incredible food they make? But more importantly, how do they create this incredible culture? How do they recruit this amazing talent? How do they keep this amazing talent? And I'm hoping we can dig in to a lot of that today. But I'd love to start by hearing a little bit about your story. How did you get involved with Chick-fil-A? Well, it is a funny story. I'd gone to college as a journalism major, and actually I was at a Christian college where I met my husband, and I really saw that my future was going to be in full-time Christian ministry, and specifically using my journalism skills. But when I got out of school, it was a little bit, well, not really like things are now, because this is a time I've never seen before, but similar in that we were in a major recession, and there was a scarcity of jobs, particularly in my segment, you know, there weren't a lot of journalism jobs available. So I um, had to figure out what else I was going to do. So I decided to use those skills in the advertising business. And I went to work for an advertising firm outside of Atlanta. I was there about 18 months. And then uh, my husband was a pastor. And so we were serving at a church on the other side of Atlanta. And we really needed to get closer. And part of my story, too, is I was working for an organization with a pretty toxic culture. So those two things combined, it was time for a change. And my husband had become familiar with Chick-fil-A because some of our church members worked there and he had visited for lunch and had the opportunity to see the corporate headquarters. I grew up in Atlanta eating Chick-fil-A, knew about the product, but never much about the organization. Well, he talked me into applying and I applied there. And two weeks later, I received a turn down uh, note that said, thank you for your interest, but we don't have anything that matches your skills and abilities. Hmm. So I told my husband, I said, well, that's that. I gave it a try. It didn't work out. Um, let's move on to the next thing. He said, not so quick. Why don't you apply again? <laughs> so I did. And two weeks later, I got another version of that same note. Well, then I was pretty intrigued. It's like, okay, who are these people? They've turned me down twice. <laughs> and uh, you know, all of my 21-year-old self, I had confidence wondering why in the world would you turn me down twice? So um, I just began pursuing them and I would follow up every once in a while asking about opportunities. Well, one day my husband was in the church and a woman came in and of course, Cal, this was long before cell phones and she'd had a flat tire and she needed to use the telephone to call her husband to come change the tire. And my husband, who's quite the knight in shining armor type, said, don't do that. I'll change the tire for you. So he changed the tire and he said, do you work at Chick-fil-A? And And she said, I do, but my husband's been transferred, so I've resigned. He said, what department do you work in? She said, advertising. So he ushered her out of the church. He called me quickly. I hung up the phone with him. I called Chick-fil-A. I said, I understand you have a position in advertising, and I'd like to interview. Now, I'm not sure if they were really interested in me at the time, or they were just tired of me pestering them, but they invited me in for an interview for that position. And long story short, I went through months-long process of interviewing and I got into the final interview 
with the Vice President of Human Resources. And this was on an October night um, in 1985. And I would say that that was a pivotal moment in my life because at the end of the interview, he said, now we're probably going to offer you the job in advertising, but I have a job in human resources you might be interested in. Why don't you think about it over the weekend? And so over the weekend, I thought about it, and I'm a person who likes a lot of change and variety. So I thought, well, I'll take this job in HR. I'll do this for a little while. And in a couple of years, I'll know where the jobs are, and I'll go back to marketing. Well, the rest, as they say, is history. I never made it back to marketing, um, but found a new calling in HR. Wow. I did not know. (laughs) It's so What's so interesting to me, thinking about the role that you played towards the end of your career at Chick-fil-A being the gateway for so many people to enter the culture and into their company. But I did not know that you were turned down twice. I love the persistence. I love that story. And what a, what a cool arc to your career. And just for context, how big was Chick-fil-A when you first started? Well, Chick-fil-A was about um, 150 restaurants doing $175 million in revenue. And um, we had about a hundred people on the corporate staff at that time. And then today, how, how big has Chick-fil-A become? Um, I don't know that I can quote you the stats of where they are today, but when I left Chick-fil-A, it was close to 11 billion in revenues and about 2,500 restaurants and 1,500 or 1,700 staff members. Wow. And that's just, that's just amazing. And one of the things that I, that I really want to dig in with you on is culture, because everyone, or I think everyone, loves Chick-fil-A's food, but you can't help but just be blown away when you go to Chick-fil-A about their, the culture. There's just something different. I mean, we talk about it, my family talks about it all the time. There's just something different about Chick-fil-A, the way they treat their customers, the, the, the look on the face of the employees. They just seem happier, more fulfilled. So let's dig into that. What do you, I guess the first question is, why do you think culture matters so much? Well, I think culture is foundational to everything you do. And if you don't have people who are aligned and marching together in the same direction, it's really hard to achieve any goals. Um, So I think that, you know, of course, this is my opinion. And I I wrote a book called Bet on Talent, How to Create a Remarkable Culture that Wins the Hearts of Customers. And based on the fact that culture is foundational and then you have to have extraordinary talent, when you put those two things together and you teach that talent how to... Um, work within principles instead of rules or apply principles instead of being compliant to rules, then that's how you win the hearts of customers. Do you have a, a definition of culture that you go to? Well, I don't use a definition as much as what I say. I think it's made up of three elements. And so a culture, some people think of culture is um, the activities of an organization or, um, you know, it's, it's, the team outings you have, or it's how you celebrate birthdays. And those can be behaviors that are reflective of culture. But what I believe the culture starts with is a meaningful purpose. It's your big why. Why are you, why does your organization exist at all? And everybody really needs to know that why. I talk about this a lot when I'm speaking about Chick-fil-A. And when I find another organization that I can walk in the doors of any part of that organization and people can tell me what the purpose is, then I'll use a different example. So at Chick-fil-A, their purpose is to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that's entrusted to them and a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. 
So they're not just in the chicken business, they're in the people business, and they're about being um, about stewarding their resources well and being a positive influence. The second element of a remarkable culture is a challenging mission, a big goal that everyone in the organization is trying to achieve. Now, you'll have individual goals and team goals and all kinds of goals that lead up to that, but there's this one thing that you've decided you're going after. While a purpose generally never changes, once you've achieved a mission, then it's time to set a new one. And so a mission will change during an organization. The third element and that I feel like makes up an organization's culture is their demonstrated core values. And you'll notice I say demonstrated because actually that word is more important than the word values. If you have a set of values that are just on a screensaver or um, are up on the wall somewhere in your organization, but people don't actually live them out and demonstrate them, then they're not very valuable. Um, but when you decide what behaviors, what beliefs you hold most dear and what behave and how you're going to live out the purpose and mission, that becomes your core values. So to me, that's the definition of culture. It's, um, it's your organization's meaningful purpose, challenging mission and demonstrated core values as it's lived out by the people of the organization. What tips would you give to leaders about defining their purpose? Were you there when the Chick-fil-A kind of defined the purpose? The way Chick-fil-A, I was not there. I came not long after that, but this actually happened in 1982. And so um, what happened is that Chick-fil-A or Truett Cathy, had had a, uh, the founder of Chick-fil-A, had a restaurant since 1946. So in 1946, he opened his first little restaurant outside of Atlanta. And then in 1964, Chick-fil-A became incorporated and began growing primarily in shopping malls. In fact, in 1982, they were only in shopping malls. So all those years, a stunning thing had, had never happened. They had never had a slump in sales in all those years. But 1982 was a different year. And it was not a good year for the American economy. And so Chick-fil-A was experiencing their first ever slump in sales. And so the executives, Truett and his executive committee, started talking about why that was and what they would do about it. So they went off to a retreat. Now, most companies, when they're in that situation of a slump in sales, oh, and I forgot to mention, Chick-fil-A had just opened their brand new corporate headquarters, five-story, beautiful building sitting on 76 acres. So Truett not only had a slump in sales, but he was deeply in debt. And when organizations find themselves in that position, you know, one of the first things they're going to do is cut budgets and reduce their workforce. So the Chick-fil-A executives went off on a retreat to discuss what they were going to do about this situation. And for the first half day, they talked about those types of issues. How do we how do we reduce our expenses? And then halfway through the first day of this three day retreat, one of them said, wait a minute, why are we here at all? And they spent the next two and a half days discussing their why. They came back to the Chick-fil-A corporate office and they shared that with the staff there of what they decided. And it was that purpose I mentioned earlier to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that's entrusted to us to be a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. The staff liked it so much, they carved it in bronze and stuck it on a granite pedestal outside the front door so that every day when they came to work, they knew exactly why they worked there and why Chick-fil-A was in business. And when the Chick-fil-A operators or franchisees, we use both terms, would come and visit, they would know that. When their team members visited, when customers and guests came, they would know why Chick-fil-A was in business. 
Now, it doesn't matter if you have this meaningful purpose if you don't activate it. And, you know, you can carve it in bronze and stick it on a pedestal, but, you know, if it doesn't have any action behind it, it's not very meaningful. And so what happened next was really amazing. So it's 2021 and Chick-fil-A hasn't had a slump in sales since then, including through a global pandemic. Wow. So I think figuring out their why, and in fact, you know, in times of crisis, like um, something like a COVID or something, I know that Chick-fil-A's history is they go back to their purpose. They remember why they exist at all. Some of the other amazing things that happened, Chick-fil-A became debt-free in 2012. Um, and probably the thing that I appreciate most, I couldn't quote to you what retention is today, um, but when um, I back for the 30 years I was involved in it, they, enjoy, they enjoyed a retention rate of 95% for their corporate staff and 95% for their Chick-fil-A franchisees. And even in markets and situations like now, Chick-fil-A franchisees enjoy some of the lowest turnover rates in the industry. Again, I can't quote where they are today, but I've been told it's similar. So a long history of um, success in that area. And I think it all goes back to they discovered their why. And Deanne, how do you activate the purpose? So I envision perhaps as maybe new people are coming on, they're learning about the purpose, or maybe there's some repetition uh, at staff meetings, but how do you, how do you practically activate a purpose like that and make sure it gets to all of your employees? Sure. And I think I'll add into it. It's really, how do you activate a culture like that to include purpose, mission, and core values? And yes, it starts before somebody even comes on board. They're experiencing that during the selection process. They're, um, it's, you know, it's so uh, well, the culture is so well known and so published, it would be hard to show up for an interview and not know what Chick-fil-A's pur- purpose, mission, and value core values are. Um, so to start with, it's going to start in the selection process. In fact, um, when I was leading that part of the business, you know, I like to talk about that select talent for character, competency, and chemistry. And character has so much to do with your culture because your culture is made up of the, co- the combined and collective character of all the people in your organization. So, you know, people were selected against those things. Is their personal purpose, mission, and values align with that of the organization? They don't have to match exactly, but are they aligned is the question. So um, that's the first place it starts. And then, of course, in onboarding, you um, are, are reinforcing that. You're explaining what the values are. You're telling stories, most importantly, about how these things are actually lived out. And then you're demonstrating it constantly. When you make major organizational decisions, it always goes through the filter of, does this match our purpose? Does this match our mission? Does it support that mission and move it forward? Does it match and align with our core values? And when organizations have the discipline to constantly go back to that for every decision they make, every new uh, program they introduce, every new process they have to say, does this align with our culture? Um, then you're naturally integrating into your organization where it actually becomes second nature to your people. And I want to ask about mission because you mentioned that uh, the challenging mission is something that maybe can change over time, whereas the purpose is something that's enduring. What's an example of a mission that maybe Chick-fil-A had or you've seen in other organizations? Well, I've talked a lot about Chick-fil-A. So let me give you another example I saw firsthand and I'll I'll try to make this story a little but uh, my son is a football player at Wake Forest University. And his freshman year, 
um, I really saw this come uh, into action. And I've, I even you know, wrote blog posts and have spoken about it because the way this team fulfilled their mission. So without going into a lot of history um, about the Wake Forest football program, let's just say they got a new coach a number of years ago. And it really changed their whole program. And so in 2018, their goal had been to reach a bowl game for the third straight year, which actually was going to tie school history. That hadn't happened before. And so I could go through the whole season with you and tell you about the benchmarks and all the things that happened and how close they came to not meeting the goal. But the bottom line is they um, made it to the bowl game, but they made it um, at six and six. So they didn't have uh, – their other goal was to have a winning season. And so to reach their mission, they had to win the bowl game, which also set a new mission to be the first uh, football team in the history of Wake Forest to win four straight uh, – to go to four uh, – win four straight um, bowl games. So anyway, the, the cool thing was is um, – so that was their mission. Again, I could go through all the ways they uh, worked towards achieving it. But what was the most powerful thing is a tweet I saw after they won the game. And um, and I actually messed that story up a little bit. It's about winning three straight, not four. It was winning three straight um, bowl games in a row. And so when they won their third straight, made school history, they're in the locker room and their coach, Dave Clawson, pulls them all together and, and he you know, he celebrates them. He tells them how much he loves them, tells the seniors they'll always be part of the program, tells them they're getting rings, all this great stuff. And then the last thing he says to them is, oh, guys, by the way, in three weeks, we go for number four. And I thought that was so incredible because he used all the momentum, all the emotion of that moment in that locker room to direct his team to the next mission. He immediately set the next mission. And and that's what really good leaders do. They achieve a mission, they celebrate it, but then they put their eye and their vision on the next mission. And so that that example comes to me a lot when I think about an organization achieving a great mission and how they immediately shifted into, and by the way, they achieved that and they achieved the next one too. And I think a lot of it is because of his ability to keep them focused on their mission. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think I, I first of all, I love football and I, I love that example. And I think it's, it sounds like to me, it just highlights how that mission is a short-term focused, uh, attainable thing that the organization can focus on. And that as soon as you're done with that mission, you, you move on to that next challenging mission. And I do agree that a, that a team or an organization needs a challenge, needs something to rally around, whether it's a football team or a company or even in, in the military, a, a platoon. Um, I want to ask you about, so you talked about rules-based culture versus a principles-based culture. And you know, I, I think I have certainly experienced how rules can form. So for example, if you're on a team and someone makes a mistake, a lot of times a organization will create a new rule. Okay, now we're going to, in the military, we call it a lot of times a forcing function. So now because that one person messed that one thing up, we're going to create a rule where everyone has to do this to ensure that that never happens again. And I'm sure there's a lot of different ways that rules are created in, in organizations. But can you talk to us a little bit about maybe the, the difference, like what that would look like in an organization to be principled-based versus rule-based? Yeah. So what we look for 
and a remarkable culture is creating the kind of environment where people are committed to principles rather than compliant to rules. And um, my first job out of college, and, and actually I've, I've had three jobs since I got out of college. The first job I had before I went to Chick-fil-A, the 33 years at Chick-fil-A, and then the last three years as owning my own business. And so the first job I had was a real toxic culture. And one of the reasons was the rules. Um, you know, I give the example of my pay was docked if I was 30 seconds late from my 30 minute lunch. Um, and it was just, you know, look at organizations and they become known either by their rules or principles when you stop and think about it. Look at how organizations respond to a crisis. Do they set more rules? Or do they have principles that allow people to flourish? So I'll give you one example, toxic culture from my first job, and then I'll move on to talking about the principle um, part that I learned at Chick-fil-A. But uh, in my first job, so we had all these rules. One of the really crazy rules was that um, every day after lunch, my boss took a nap, a two-hour <laughs> nap. <laughs> full on. And he left very strict instructions to not be disturbed under any circumstances. Oh, wow. And we walked on eggshells. Um, other leaders that worked there would constantly remind you, don't you dare wake him up. You know, if you wake him up and, and a couple of times it happened that he got woken up and come out of his office and he was all red faced. And oh I mean, it was a bad scene. Wow. And so, yeah, it, it was it was pretty bad. So one day these guys showed up and, and I was the sometimes receptionist. And I was at the front desk and they show up and they're wearing these dark suits and these earpieces and they show me a badge and they asked to speak with my boss. And you won't believe what I said, Cal. I said, I'm sorry, that's not possible. <laughs> and, you know, what had happened is that at, he's napping. Yeah. And at 20 years old, I was so full of that toxic culture that I was more concerned about waking up my snoring boss than obstructing armed federal agents at that point. Mm -hmm. By the way, he did eventually get woken up, but, <laughs> uh, but that was the way we saw things. Mm -hmm. And then I went into work for Chick-fil-A and all of a sudden the principles were things like use your best judgment mm -hmm. and, um, you know, treat everybody with honor, dignity, and respect. There wasn't a rule of um, you must do this or you must not do that. It was, and by the way, they selected people capable of operating under principles. That's a big part of that. You have to have people that have the kind of judgment that they can operate under principles. But let's take it to the, you love, you talk about loving being a, a, a customer of Chick-fil-A. So let's play it out there. Um, a couple of times we almost missed it up, messed it up. I'll tell you a fun story about um, Truett Cathy. And Truett was the author of this principal idea. He, he didn't want a bunch of rules. We didn't even have an employee handbook until very late in my career. He just didn't want people to feel like they had to operate under rules. So he, uh, but what, he tried to establish a rule one time. It didn't go so well. He had been spending time with uh, Horst Schultze at the Ritz Carlton. And he loved when he was there that when he said thank you to the employees that they would say, my pleasure. And so he liked it so much, he decided that he thought that they should say that at Chick-fil-A to the guest. And especially at the time, it was popular for the teenagers working at Chick-fil-A. You'd say, thank you. And they'd say, no problem. He really didn't like that. <laughs> so he came to the national, it was called seminar, but it was the national convention of the franchisees and full of Chick-fil-A franchisees and staff members. And he stood up in front of them and he told a much longer version of this story. And he said, now, when... 
Your guests say thank you. I want your team members to say my pleasure. Well, we went away and nothing changed. Now, to make a long story short, this went on for 10 years. He came back every year making this request. And some people might say, why could the CEO not get people to do what he asked them to do? Well, again, because they weren't used to it being rules. Many of them, when they came into business with Chick-fil-A, there were only three rules. Don't open on Sunday, don't change the menu, and put the money in the bank. And now they were supposed to say, my pleasure. They thought it was a suggestion. They didn't understand it as a rule. And so the 10th year, Truett came to the convention and he sort of slammed his hand down on the podium a little bit. And he said, now I mean it. When your team members say, when your guests say, thank you, I want your team members to say, my pleasure. Well, we left that day and his son, Dan, who was the president of the company at the time said, I think dad means it. So we're going to say my pleasure. Well, the genius of all this was in the Chick-fil-A franchisees because they heard it. And they knew the expectation, but they did not communicate it necessarily as a rule to their team members. They went back to their team members and they explained the big why behind this new idea of my pleasure. They didn't go back and say, okay, now you have to say my pleasure. Every time a guest says, thank you, be sure you say my pleasure. Say my pleasure because truth could come and, and we're not saying my pleasure and we could get in trouble. They didn't do that at all. Instead, they went back and said, you know what? It is our pleasure to serve our guest." Because if, um, um, you know, they are the ones who pay our paychecks. They're the ones who provide promotions for us. They're the ones who um, pay for the scholarship program. All of those things. This is why it's our pleasure to serve them. And so that's why when you go into Chick-fil-A today, you don't have, you know, robots telling you my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure. Instead, you hear it's my pleasure. It really is their pleasure. So um, that was a great example how, you know, it started with a rule. And I would say it's almost felt as a principle. It's a principle of customer service now. I love that. There's, I've always been so curious about that. Uh, my pleasure. In fact, when we go to Chick-fil-A, my daughter will, will say thank you just so she can hear them say my pleasure. But you could also see an organization where if you just told people, hey, you have to say my pleasure, then it becomes this cynical thing that people say. But I love the way you describe that, that it's not, and that's certainly not the way it feels at Chick-fil-A. It's not this thing that they have to do or that they're cynical about doing. It genuinely feels to the customer like it's their pleasure to serve us in that, in that moment. And that is a great story and example. Uh, and, and I always love going and experiencing that. And it does make a difference, to be honest. It just makes a difference when, uh, not just in the what they say, but how they treat the people uh, that they're serving. Um, well, that's awesome. I, I love that. That's really helpful to, for me to understand culture. I do just want to follow up real quick though. I mean, obviously at Chick-fil-A, you have rules. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are rules about the way you cook your food or the way you sanitization. I mean, is there, I guess, how do you strike that balance between having some rules, but also having these guiding principles that, that really shape the organizational culture? Well, that's a great question. And you do have to have rules. Absolutely. Chick-fil-A, for example, is going to have stringent rules around food safety and um, those types of things that impact, impact the welfare of guests. If you're in healthcare, you have rules. If you're in banking, you have rules. But when you can strike a balance and the rules can be about the most important things of which there's no negotiation, like people's safety or safeguarding their money, things like that and that you can allow people to use more judgment. It came up again at Chick-fil-A 
when um, you might or might not be familiar with their term second mile service. And it really was a competitive play at the time because a lot of restaurants were copying the Chick-fil-A sandwich or coming up with their own version of it. And so Chick-fil-A knew for the long term, they'd have to compete at a different level. And so they began focusing on the service delivery even more so than they had in the past. And what they discovered that they wanted was this thing called second mile service. We know what first mile is. That's getting the order correct, um, a reasonable time and with friendly service. But second mile service really became competitive advantage. And when this first started, it started with a lot of definitions of specific behaviors. Uh, one of the examples, I started to reach for it's right behind me on my cabinet, is the pepper grinder. We went through a, a season where that was the way to show second mile service mm. was you were to have a pepper grinder in the restaurant and you take the pepper grinder over and you grind fresh pepper on salads when guests come to the restaurant. Well, what happened is a couple things. First of all, those pepper grinders kept disappearing. They cost $82 a piece. And so that became expensive since it was a rule to have it in the restaurant. Um, the franchisees had to keep replacing them. And then secondly, not everybody wanted that experience in a fast food restaurant. Customers are different in different markets. So people just want different things. And so Chick-fil-A backed up and said, okay, forget grinding the peppers, the rule. What we really want to happen is that every customer on every visit experiences some element of second mile service. Now we have some suggestions of what those might be, mainly based on best practices of other franchisees. But you know what? You figure out what's best for your restaurant. You know your team members, you know your customers, you do what's best in your environment. Well, what happened next disrupted the entire fast food industry because these team members, when they were freed up with that principle, um, which actually they did it so well, it became make second mile second nature. And they did. They were doing amazing things from jumping off dead batteries to changing tires in the parking lot to going dumpster diving for discarded dental appliances <laughs> um, to returning wallets who had been left when people were on their way through on vacation 25 miles away with all the contents intact. They were doing amazing and astounding things for their customers. And so um, we learned a lot from that. And when you free people up to um, and give them a, a principle like that, they'll apply it in every situation they can. Yeah, I think you really highlight that well, the difference between a rule and a principle, because just going back to you with the, with the police officers who arrive at your former business, you felt zero flexibility. To you, it was just okay, there's a rule and the boss is asleep. So no matter who it is, it's at our front door. I've got to tell them this answer. Whereas these, these principles that you all have created, give people the flexibility to go that extra mile. Cause I experienced that at Chick-fil-A. You, you just, there's, there's that built-in flexibility of, Hey, we got your order wrong. We're going to, we're going to comp that, or we're going to get, maybe we're going to make it right. There's just this feeling of empowerment that you get at, with the employees at Chick-fil-A. I, I want love to ask, that word. I love that word empowerment. And that's exactly what a rules-based um, organization does not do. Rules-based is based on fear, fear of getting in trouble, fear of getting fired. But a principle-based organization is based on freedom, freedom to serve, which is really what we're in business to, in business to do to start with. I want to ask you about retention. You mentioned the incredible retention rate that Chick-fil-A has with their team members. 
any sense of, of really, because it's one thing to, to talk about these principles. It's, it's another thing to talk about you know, rules-based versus principle-based, these great ideas. But then you have these employees who are carrying these things out with enthusiasm, with passion, with excitement. How? So I'm, I'm curious, how do you do that? But also, I think that might be related to how do you keep these people in the organization once they've arrived? This may be the most important thing you asked me today because... Um, first of all, the real heroes of that story are the Chick-fil-A franchisees. They're the ones who keep the, who attract this um, tremendous talent and they keep them. And they do it a lot by their personal influence. And it's different for every one of them because they're all different individuals. But um, I think there are three things that across the board, a lot of these franchisees are selected um, because of this and that they accomplish and why Chick-fil-A is a great place to work and why people stay there. Number one, they do create a remarkable culture. Um, they they may or may not have the same purpose, mission, and values as Chick-fil-A Incorporated. Now, they're aligned, obviously, but they create their own, and they um, have their team members part of the development of that, and so there's buy-in to that. That's an important part of developing your purpose, mission, and values is including others in doing that so that they have buy-in. So number one, they have this remarkable culture that they live out and that these franchisees are the example of by the on a daily basis of what they do with their own team members and how they help their own customers. Um, secondly, they're about something bigger than themselves. So I don't think any of us could stay in the in this business, in the Chick-fil-A business, just to sell chicken. I mean, it's a great product, no question. And those waffle fries are craveable, but that's not enough for anybody to spend 20, 30, 40 years, which a lot of staff members do, a lot of operators do. And then it's amazing how many team members um, have long storied careers at a Chick-fil-A restaurant. And it's part of it is about being um, this bigger than yourself. And again, it's Oftentimes, um, the organization itself is about things bigger than themselves, where it's this remarkable scholarship program that sent so many kids to school, or it's um, a foster care program that's provided homes for so many, or we could just go, you know, clean drinking water um, in places. We could go on and on what that looks like, um, you know, food sharing programs. And then in their own, um, but these operators in their own communities, they find out what the biggest need is in their community. And it's not just one or two or one time, it's constantly giving back to their communities in all kinds of ways with their time, talent, and treasure. And um, so when you, you know, these team members, when they go to work, they're part of something bigger than just making a chicken sandwich and selling it to a customer. And they're taught, you know, what that does beyond that restaurant. And then lastly, one of the great things they're doing is um, providing opportunities for development. Um, Chick-fil-A, when you think about, so when I was there, and, I, and the numbers have changed a little bit, they're actually tighter, but you know, around 60,000 applications a year to be a franchisee and around 100 to be selected. I mean, you do the math on that and the percentage is unbelievable um, of how difficult it is and how selective Chick-fil-A is. Now, wouldn't you want to look for work for a leader that had been that carefully selected and screened? And what does that mean for opportunity? Well, one of the things Chick-fil-A is screening for is that ability to lead. Will they develop other people in their care? So 
you talk about skills development and life skills development. These franchisees are masters at this. And that's why people go and stay with them because they're not just cooking and selling chicken. They're learning all kinds of leadership capabilities that are helping them later in life. You know, recently, um, Senator Tim Scott from, um, from South Carolina was doing an interview and he talked about, and John Moniz, his operator, has been gone from Chick-fil-A since 1985 gone since 1985, and Senator Tim Scott is still talking about his influence from his first job as a teenager. And I could tell you stories the rest of the afternoon about similar situations. So, you know, I'm thinking about this job market we have right now, Cal, where where people aren't going out and getting these kind of jobs. But if I was at this season of life, that's a place I'd want to be is at a Chick-fil-A where I could get that kind of development that's going to serve me in some other role uh, along the way. Deanne, how many interviews do you think you've done if you had to estimate why you were at Chick-fil-A? Because you were a big part of the vetting process for these franchisees, correct? Um, yeah, that was that was certainly my role to um, lead that uh, the selection of operators for about 20 years. And so um, I did, you know, I didn't count them, but it was tens of thousands of interviews and selected thousands of franchisees and corporate staff members. And uh, one question is, are there any big commonalities between the people that you ultimately select? Yeah, I would say the number one that I commonality among the people that I selected was I was always looking for people who had a heart for service. And so um, that's one of Chick-fil-A's core values. We're here to serve. And everybody in the organization is serving somebody. They're either serving chicken or they're serving people who are serving chicken. And so um, we're always looking, I was always looking for people with a heart for service. The other thing that I um, was looking for uh, would be people who um, had a track record of strong leadership, Um, whether you know, some of those franchisees were very, very young when they started and they had that track record in college or, um, you know, in early career, but looking for people who had that track record that would have, would um, help grow people and help make the employment experience uh, really outstanding. And I've heard you talk about it and I'd love to, to hear you expand it a little bit is that your method of interviewing where you're able to really get into people's experience, get beyond those, those first answers to your questions. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to interviewing? Sure. Um, it's popular, but I think it's incredibly effective. And, and so I always took a behavioral interviewing approach. And what behavioral interviewing is, is asking people about their actual experience. If past performance is the best predictor of future performance, then understanding their past performance is really important. And so when interviewing, I would ask questions like, tell me about a time when you um, give me an example of, tell me a story. And those rather than, um, you know, do you like to lead people? You know, that you don't get a lot of information on that. But if I say, tell me about the most difficult project you ever worked on. They tell me about the project. And then I'll say, what did you do differently the next time when you encountered the same type of situation? They tell me that. What was the feedback from your supervisor in both of those situations? How did they guide you um, in both of those situations? And what did the customer think after they received the end product from you? All of a sudden, we've had a 10-minute discussion, and I have a lot of information from which to make a decision. By the way, on my website, dnturner.com, your listeners can go to that website and click on a um, 
tab that says uh, top 25 interview questions. And those are my top 25 behavioral interviewing questions that they can put to work today uh, in their own interviews and selecting talent. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that, Deanne. And I'll put links to that in the show notes of this episode. I downloaded that this past week and those questions were fantastic. Uh, so thank you for making that resource available. Deanne, as we're running out of time here, I'd love to jump into a fun lightning round of questions. The first question I have for you is what is one habit routine or ritual that has really made the biggest positive difference for you? Um, I talk about this a lot and I know a lot of people do this, but it's how I start my day. The first hour of my day is extraordinarily important and it's something I've been doing now for decades, but it's getting up, having quiet time for me. That's uh, reading my Bible and um, praying and then um, reading something of value to, to my business life and getting in my exercise. And if I do those things every morning, it starts my day off with lots of energy um, lots of positive endorphins, and I accomplish a lot more. So um, very, very rarely do I ever miss that for any reason. Um, even if I have to, you know, get up early and, you know, if I have something that starts at seven, I'm going to be up at five uh, so I can get that in. What is your top marriage or relationship advice? I think that um, it's about my advice is to serve one another. And I have to say, I think my husband's better at it than me. Um, he's such a glowing example of service. But um, when you just commit to serving one another in the most positive way, I mean that. But um, when you put somebody else's needs above yourself, um, I think that will end in a, in a lasting marriage. We've been married almost 38 years now, so it's working so far. <laughs> wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. Uh, I'd love to ask you your top parenting advice. Yeah, so I my thoughts here, and I had to learn this the hard way, um, let them make their own mistakes. Don't protect them from mistakes as they're growing up um, because you want them to make their, their biggest mistakes when they live with you. You have a lot more influence to coach them, to guide them, to help them through it. And so, and, and on the other hand, when they make a big mistake after you've let them, you know, don't let, don't be consumed in disappointment but be thankful for the opportunity that they're under your roof to help guide them through that. And I think you'll see later on that they're prepared to make better choices. Um, they've worked through some of the hard stuff while they were under your roof. It is a whole lot harder when they're making those mistakes and um, you know you, they're outside of your control. So let them make those mistakes young. Don't protect them um, from trouble or, I mean, protect them from death, but don't protect them from, uh, the consequences of their mistakes. Let them live them out and they'll be better people for it. That's so good. I appreciate that. My seven-year-old is, uh, it's always a temptation to try to, to save her from the consequences of, of those decisions. But I, I appreciate that. Um, well, who was one leader that you really admire? Just, just one leader that when you think about leadership comes to the top of your mind. There's uh, so many people who have helped me that come to mind, but, you know, my all-time favorite would be my mentor, sponsor, and champion at Chick-fil-A, Jimmy Collins, who was president of Chick-fil-A um, for the majority of my career and um, just helped uh, pave the way for me, um, which was really pioneering at the time um, because I was Chick-fil-A's first female officer, and I wouldn't have had that opportunity without Jimmy's support. Mm. 
top leadership book, if you had to just pick one, what would be your top leadership book to the leaders out there recommendation? Totally difficult question, but the one that <laughs> every leader needs to read is Dr. Henry Cloud's book, Integrity. Mm, I have not read that. Well, Deanne, this has been such a joy for me to connect with you. I'd love to give you the, the final word. If you could just tell people how to connect with you and any parting advice you have for the leaders that are listening. Absolutely. So please connect with me at deanneturner.com. You can learn more about my best-selling book, Bet on Talent, my brand new book, Crush Your Career, Ace the Interview, Land the Job, and Launch Your Future. And then also follow me on Facebook at Deanne Turner Author. Love to connect with you on LinkedIn, um, Deanne Turner, and Instagram at Deanne Turner, and Twitter at Deanne Turner. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me today, Cal. Oh, my pleasure, Deanne. It's been so much fun. And uh, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Uh, you're, you're so generous and, and such a wealth of knowledge. And I love your heart behind all the work you're doing. So just keep it up. Thank you. Appreciate all it. All right. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Deanne. That was a lot of fun for me because I have been fascinated about the culture at Chick-fil-A and how they have been able to create such an amazing organization, not just with great food, but with a great culture. And I think as leaders, often we get into a job, we get into a team, and we forget about the importance up front of defining that purpose, creating that meaningful purpose. And so I encourage you, if, if that's unclear to you about your team's purpose, your organization's purpose, take the time right now, go out today and begin the process. It's probably best done in a group of maybe your leadership team, or at least with one other trusted advisor. And it needs to be something probably bigger than just what you do. What is the purpose of your team or organization? Also go and define that second thing that she talked about, which is your challenging mission, that thing that changes maybe from one season to the next. And then think about your core values. What are your core values? What are not, not just the things that you would aspire to be, but what is it, what are your unique core values that you demonstrate? That is really important for us to do as a leader. Culture, as Peter Drucker famously said, eat strategy for breakfast every day. Culture has to be something that we as leaders do, we focus on. Ask yourself, how much time are you spending working in your organization and how much time are you spending working on your organization? That's what leaders do. We work on the organization. We build the culture. The culture is forming. It just may not be the type of culture that we want it to be unless we're being intentional about the way we, we build our culture. One thing we didn't get to, but I love this distinction that she makes. She talks about the difference between being nice and being kind. And the way she distinguishes it, she says, being nice is all about me. It's about people liking me. And sometimes as leaders, we think we're, we're being helpful, but we're really focused too much on being nice about others liking us. Being kind, on the other hand, is about the other person. It's about building up the people on your team. And that's what we want to be doing as leaders. We want to be being kind to people. And then I, the last thing I'll just point out is what she said about behavioral interviewing, about actually going into those second and third and fourth questions to get past people's canned responses that they have ready for interviews and really getting into their experience. One rule that she has that I've heard her talk about is she would ask four follow-up questions for every original answer that they have. And that just forced her to go deep. And so that is a great way for us to really pick the best talent, get the best talent on our team so then we can incorporate them into this great culture, get alignment between not just what we say we are, but also the team members 
who are on our team. One of the, the, my favorite quotes from the interview, she said, is your culture is made up of the combined and collective character of all the people in your organization. Friends, if you enjoyed this, please share it with someone in your network. If you also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us grow. Also consider joining our Patreon team. Just joining, uh, go to patreon.com slash calwalters. You can become a monthly contributor or even just annual contributor. Help us with our long-term vision. Join the Intentional Leader Lab on Facebook. And hey, friends, go out really incorporate leadership principles we talked about today. I hope that you go and make it a great day. Remember that life is short, so let's go make it count.